reading is from Paul's letter to the young church in Rome. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. If you'd like to follow this in the church Bibles, it begins on page 1132. I find it handy to have it open to refer to during the sermon. In the large print Bible, it's on page 1799. Romans 6, verses 1 to 14. The chapter heading is Dead to Sin, Alive in Christ. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer the parts of your body to him, as instruments of righteousness. For sin has not to be your master, shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Thank you, Isabel. Shall we just pray as we open God's word? Lord, may your spirit, through your word, take us to a greater understanding of the reality of what Jesus has done for us through his cross and his resurrection. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Kate and I love to walk on the Surrey Hills or the South Downs, and as you know, some of it's quite steep, and I'm sure you, you, you've experienced this, where you're going up the hill and the conversation wanes a bit, and eventually somebody says, um, maybe we should just enjoy the view for a moment. 
And uh, curiously, sometimes actually when that happens, when there is no view, but no one, no one passes any comment. Does that ever happen on the cameo walks, I wonder? Um, I say this because Paul's letters are a bit like that, aren't they? Um, particularly in Romans, we have to pause for breath quite often and, and take it in small chunks. And, uh, but the great thing is that when we do pause, we can enjoy the most spectacular views. We've celebrated an event last weekend, and, and thanks again to, to Mike and to Janie for taking us on that journey through from Monday, Thursday, right through. I found it most helpful and meaningful. But what we've celebrated is nothing less than the turning point, the pivotal point in world history. It's nothing less than that. The burial, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But with Easter behind us, here we are one week on, what does it mean this time tomorrow? We've been talking about this time tomorrow. So this time tomorrow, what is probably the start for most of us, a pretty ordinary week. What does it actually mean? Easter is a week behind. Is it just like an anniversary where it comes around once a year, we make a bit of fuss of it, and then it's forgotten until next year? What does it really mean, as the title suggests, to be Easter people? Paul emphasizes time and time again in his letters that we receive the blessings of God by His grace. There is nothing that we can do to earn it. He makes that crystal clear time and time again. So I'm sure someone must have said to him, Paul, you can't go around saying that because people will just say, well, I can live as I please then which is what he says in verse 1. If God is so gracious and forgiving, why, why bother? So, as we anticipate, of course, in verse 2, he says, as we expect, an abrupt, certainly not, by no means. And I find myself, just before we move on, pausing at that point and asking myself, have I ever caught myself making light of my failures on the basis that God would be quick to forgive me. But then Paul uses this, uh, it, it kind of opens a door to a whole subject where he gives an extended answer to this question that he has posed. And one of the extraordinary claims that Paul makes here and elsewhere regarding the events at the heart of the Christian story, the death and resurrection of Jesus, is that it happened to us in baptism. It was read to us. We died and we rose again. So let's just try to get some understanding of what this rather strange expression really means. So we'll start with Good Friday. What does it mean to be Good Friday people? What does it mean to have died with Jesus? Clearly, this is very important to Paul. Let me just, just very quickly again, let me remind you what he has said. Verse 3, all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. Verse 4, we were buried with Him through baptism into death. Verse 5, we have been united with Him in a death like His. 
Verse 6, our old self was crucified. What an image, was crucified with him. And verse 8, very simply, we died with Christ. Clearly, this is really important to Paul. He wants to get this across very clearly. But baptism into Jesus' death, what can it mean? He reminds us, of course, in verse 10 of a core confession of our Christian faith. We say it in the creeds and in our confessions, in effect. The death He, that is Jesus, died, He died to sin once for all. I think we grasp that. We confess it. We state it and we believe it. But what does it mean to be baptized into that? What does that mean? When Jesus, early, when his disciples, the early Christians, the apostles, came to an understanding of who Jesus was, why he came, what he achieved in his death and resurrection, they were attempting to describe something that had no precedent. There was no vocabulary for this. This was something so new, so incredibly different. There was no precedent, and there was no language. And we're still hindered by the limitations of language when we speak about the cross and about the resurrection. And of course, that's why we have poets. That's why we have hymn writers and songwriters because they seem to be able to, don't they, to extend the boundary of what words can do to talk about God and about Jesus and about His death. It pushes the boundaries of language. But of course, even then, however creative we are with words, we still fall so far short of comprehending what it really means. But of course, when we think about it, in everyday life, some of the most important things, from grief to love to joy, are very hard to put into words. And we use poetry to express them. But there again, we're limited. And I think that's why there are, that we have actions that take us beyond what words can actually say. So in certain instances, just an embrace, a kiss, even a handshake in, in certain times, can not just symbolize something, but can take us and communicate in ways beyond what words can. And so in the Christian church, when it comes to expressing our faith in Jesus, this act of baptism functions in a similar way, it seems to me. It doesn't in itself have any magic powers, but in some mysterious way, we reappropriate the death of Jesus 2,000 years ago, here and now, today, in baptism. And we reappropriate it, we enter into it to such an extent that we can say that we are united with Christ in His death. 
somehow my old self is crucified with him there and then. And somehow the grotesque sound of the hammer on the nails of the cross echo through the ages into the very room in which we're in. It is a very powerful, powerful event. And I am fully in that experience united with Christ. It's put this way by one hymn writer. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. So we need to pause there and just try to take it in what that means. When Paul says, all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We died with Christ. Amazing. But as Easter people, we died with Christ, but we also rose again with Christ. So what does that mean? Verse 4, he says, Just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. And he puts it even more explicitly in Colossians, where he says, you have been raised with Christ. So he said in this passage, you have died with Christ. In another place, he says, you have been raised with Christ. So what Paul is ex at pains to explain is the difference between the before and after, and this is how he's answering that question in verse 1. There is a change of status. There is a new identity. This, and I think this is crucial in this generation, this is not just being or becoming or finding my true self. If that's what we need, there are thousands of books on Amazon on that subject. I just did a quick search the other day. Something like 12,000 books come up just on this broadly on this sort of subject. If that's what we need, then we get the answer there. But I think, don't we, we have enough evidence in the world around us to say that the human plight needs more than tinkering around the edges. And that's why God's response is radical transformation. Transformation by the risen Lord and by faith and baptism, being united with Him. That transformation is beyond our ability uh, to make it ourselves. But of course, a radical change can take time to comprehend. When a prisoner is freed, they walk out the gate, they have a completely new status. They've gone from captivity to freedom. But I understand from those who counsel and work with such people, it could take years and a lot of help to adjust to the new status that they've been given. When you're married, 
and you walk down and out through the door of the church, you're no longer a single person. Your status has changed. You are married, and you go out the door to begin the process of adjusting to a life of fulfilling the promises that you have made as you were married here. That process takes time and effort. When God's ancient people were delivered from captivity in Egypt through the Red Sea, their status changed radically from captivity in Egypt to freedom to serve the living and true God. But it took them years to adjust to that freedom. And in weak moments, they even looked back and wondered if life had been better back in captivity. This is not, I'm not suggesting for one moment this is always an easy process. When we declared our faith in Christ and were baptized, and by the way, by whatever means, in whatever order, by whatever quantity of water, let's set that aside. God declared at that time that we had died and rose again with Jesus. God declared that. We were given a new status, a new identity, and a new master. But it may take all of our lives to comprehend what that really means. But the, the reality, and this is what I want to keep coming back to, is that it has already happened. We are not becoming Easter people. We are Easter people. And that is true regardless of how on any particular day we may feel about it. We are, and we are because God declares it. Let's just pause at verse 9 because this raises an issue about being risen with Christ that I think we just can't over overlook. Since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Jesus, it is clear, has a bodily life, a bodily life which is beyond the reach of death. Death cannot touch it. Unlike Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead, who was brought back to his old life and died again, the nature of Jesus' bodily life is very different. Death cannot touch him. So, Paul is saying, you have been raised with Christ. Christ is beyond bodily death. And yet he goes on in verse 12 to speak about our mortal bodies. So, how do we reconcile this apparent difference or contradiction? As a Christian community, we're all too well aware of our mortality, painfully aware in these days. But let's try to grasp this. Our hope in Christ is not only a future in God's creation, God's new creation. As Easter people, we already have transformed life in Christ here and now. 
but it is a life which anticipates in the future the resurrection day when that life will burst forth into bodily reality, and we will enter and inhabit God's new creation, a world of beauty, a world beyond tears, a life beyond the reach of death, when the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Elsewhere, Paul says that it, Christ will transform your lowly bodies and give you a body like His. But I want to re keep returning to this. As Easter people, this tran transformation has already taken place. My story is not my life followed by my death, followed by whatever happens after that. My story is life before I encountered Christ, life before faith and baptism, and life after that. We said at the beginning that the cross was the pivotal event in human history. The pivotal event in my history, in my story, is when I have, by faith and baptism, I'm united with Him in that. Transformed life in Christ has started already. So how do we live in the joy of being Easter people? How do we avoid the events of Easter just fading into the past? Verse, verse 11 Paul says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul uses this word count. It is literally a bookkeeping term. And you know, at the end of the month, if my bank balance looks a bit perilous, as it does at times, I do the sums. I say, well, this is my income, and this is what I've spent, and oh, oh dear, this month uh, I've spent a little bit too much. When I do the sums, I do not create a new reality. The overspend of last month is a fact. It has happened. But when I do the counting, I reveal to myself what is already true. And isn't that the same with any sort of counting? We just reveal a truth that already exists. Faith in Christ involves reckoning, reasoning, calculating, using our minds, working it out afresh, and allowing the Spirit of God to reveal to us through His Word what is already true and entering then into the joy of that and responding to it. The problem that we face when we do that is that it seems too good to be true. Can this be true? Amazing love, how can it be? 
how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? It seems too good to be true. Then Paul, in the final verses of this section, spells out what this means tomorrow morning. Verse 12 commences, so, therefore, often Paul does that, doesn't he? What is the implication of this? And let me just uh, pick out a phrase at the second half of verse 13, just to finish. So, in the light of all of that, present yourselves to God as those who have been, past tense, Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer, present tense, today, offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. What it means to be Easter people this time tomorrow that is, there, is that our attitudes our thinking, our behavior must be transformed by the Spirit as we grasp what it means to have died and rose again into new life in Christ. What it means to live in the joy of resurrection life, life in the anticipation of God's new creation, life that is never the same again. And then, as transformed people, we are called upon to be transforming people. And we must work out here and now on the basis of our baptism and faith what it means to live as people with a new identity a new master, a new hope. The table is set behind me for a simple yet holy meal. Another of those events which take us beyond what words can say or communicate. There is something in this, like in baptism, that take us to a different place things that we, we're participating in something that words cannot express in relation to what Jesus has done on the cross. And the scope of what Jesus achieved on the cross is greater in its scope than the universe He created. That's what we've been baptized into. And that's in what in some mysterious way we're about to participate in. And as we hold out our hands and receive, let's pray that God will take us to a place perhaps where we've never been before in our depth of our understanding of what Christ has done for us. Regardless of where we might be we may be in a dark place or in a place of doubt. Let's receive from God's Spirit and ask Him to take us deeper in our understanding 
of what he's done for us.